Well, good evening. It's good to be here tonight. And uh, I'm excited about a new group of things that my mind have been focused on over the last couple of weeks as I've kind of taken on the challenge of Psalm 119. That's where we're going to be in our text tonight, so you can turn there. Um, I know many of you probably not all of you have maybe watched a little bit of the Olympics and kind of seen the amazing things that people do and train for four years just to get the opportunity to do like one or two times. And uh, I've, I've purposely tried to watch specifically those who lose. It's easy to watch those who win because that's where the media goes, but those who lose, those who do not make the, the podium at all. And it's interesting, as I've watched just several, just a few events, not very many, the absolute just dejection, the absolute just, it seems like their whole world has come crushing down on them because they were not successful on many different levels. Personally, their career, their team, their country, I mean, there's so many levels at the Olympics, right, that, that you, you just don't satisfy. And so... I've, I've been watching these individuals and, and thinking, you know, the pressure is, is tremendous. And it especially comes out, I think, I mean, the skiing events and those types of things, but the figure skating seems to be like the harsh, harshest judges. You know, like you did not complete the triple, double lutes or whatever, the, the quadruple, whatever, and I don't even know what they're called, the, the Lutz something. Um, and your feet didn't quite turn around, and you landed with two toe tips down instead of one, and you didn't smile and do the frill thing. I mean, Ashley Kaufman could tell us all about it, because she was near the Olympics. But, um, you know, and the de de dejection that they receive and the, and the criticism that comes is intense. And as I looked at, and I've purposed to watch, those who lose, and I've been, I've been over thinking that simply because of what Psalm 19 has done in my, in my heart over the last few weeks as I've been reading through and just kind of every morning putting another piece into my mind. And it's the longest psalm. There's no real outline to it because every stanza is different. And, and uh, just to get into maybe a little of the introduction before I pray, um, it's composed of 22 stanzas, and each stanza represents one of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet in successive order. It's an acrostic. It has, each, each stanza has eight perfect lines, and there are only several acrostic psalms that are uh, in, uh, in our Bible, which would be Psalm 9, 10, 25, 34, 37, 111, 112, and 145, and in, in preparing this, I read those just to kind of see what the flows are and is there, is there similarities or there differences, and it, it kind of depends, I guess, because each one has a different theme, or at least seems like there's different themes there. Uh, the, the author debate is interesting because uh, here you come to Psalm 119, and, and you know, in your Bible there, it probably doesn't have a Psalm of David or Asaph or uh, Ezra or the sons of... Uh, whoever, I mean, they're just, it's not, it's not definitive, and uh, maybe, maybe the three people that would be in the running for this would be David, Ezra, and Daniel, I think more pointing to David, that's my kind of take on it, although it doesn't matter, it's scripture, so, you know, it's in God's word, and so we're to adhere to it. There's 21 
verses indicating in this psalm specifically some type of duress, some type of stressful situation, some type of like heavy time in life. And and because of those verses, I tend to point toward David as the author, but you be the judge. We're actually going to read these 21 verses, and the only reason is because this is kind of an introduction to it. I am going to preach over the first eight verses, but I kind of want to give you a, a bird's eye picture of some of the things here that uh, come into Psalm 119. Let's go to verse 23, which is in our text today, um, or, or a verse, although I'm going to read through verse 24 tonight. But uh, it says this, princes also sit and speak against me, but your servant meditates on your statutes. Go to verse 42. Verse 42 says, so I shall have an answer for him who reproaches me. And you can see the flavor there. 51 says, the proud have me in great derision. 61, if you go to 61, says the cords of the wicked have bound me. 67 Before I was afflicted, I went astray. 71, it is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. 78, let the proud be ashamed, for they treated me wrongly with falsehood. 86, all your commandments are faithful. They persecute me wrongfully. I won't read the rest of them just for sake of time, but you kind of get this idea. And even what Pastor was talking about this morning from Matthew 5, Is persecution part of what we experience every day? And to that we say generally, no. I don't know how many of you watched uh, last Tuesday night, this week, the debate between Ken Ham and Bill Nye the Science Guy. I hosted a group at school. I had three RSVP and 42 showed up in my little classroom. I I was thrilled. Do you know that answers in Genesis had to remove their webpage of comments because so many people were posting pornographic pictures and saying lewd things, absolutely attacking Answers in Genesis and Ken Ham specifically because they could not stand the fact that Bill Nye was on a level even considered with creation and that he would even debate him. Maybe you don't even know who those two people are. What I'm saying is is that truth somehow in our world just is gone. It's just not there. And you have to really search and try to find it. And as this psalmist says in those 21 different times, whether it's he's feeling like a, princes are coming against him or he's feeling some type of duress or stress or the Olympic pressure that are, that are on these athletes, uh, it's, it's incredible But folks, let me tell you something, and and I've told myself this many times, is that God and His truth and what He expects of us, and He's looking up to us, as Pastor said this morning, from Matthew 5, to be the salt and light of this earth. What does that mean? It means we carry truth. If we carry truth, if we are that bearer, like like the torch running into Sochi, and around places that it went, which from what I understand was unbelievable where that thing went, and how many people touched it and brought it to that particular Olympics to open the game. But we are to carry this torch, this Bible, and to be so apparent, it should be so visual to everybody that is around us that there is no question. And Psalm 119 focuses specifically and highly on God's word, which is truth. 
And I hope, my, my goal for you and for me is to see how important God's Word is, not just on Sunday mornings or Sunday evenings, that's great, but on a daily basis and how it impacts you. And I, my goal tonight in the first eight verses is to ask a couple of serious questions and to help us consider that. The theme, let's talk about that for a moment. It's difficult to point out just one theme as there is no easy outline. And like I said, it's, it's divided up here into uh, many, many chapters, if you will, uh, as, you, as you look through this thing. Um, and, and probably have uh, read it many times and even memorized many sections of it. Um, however, the author subscribes to eight terms referring to Scripture. And, and I believe, just reading through it, I've, I've probably read through it the last 20 uh, 20 days, um, minus a couple that I didn't, but um, over the entire, the entire psalm. And as you read over it, read over it, read over it, these eight terms come out of the text. I mean, they just fly out of the text, and they're significant. Listen to what comes out, and you'll, you'll see this in the first eight verses. Actually, the first 24 was what I'm going to read. Law, testimonies, precepts, statutes, commandments, Judgments, word, and ordinances. What do all of those have in common? All references to what? God's word. And you're going to see this psalmist over and over in, in beautiful poetic form and how this was written. Whether he's pray, uh, giving testimony about what he's feeling or praying, which we're going to see tonight, two facets of it is focused highly on the importance of God's word and it being an alive, a real life thing in his life. There are two questions that I'm going to ask, and I'm going to to spread these two questions out over three times that I preach, which is going to be here in February, March, and April. So it's going to be a little spread out because I I don't have the consistency, um, or I only get once once a time or once a month. Um, But... Here's two questions that I want you to, to consider as we, as we begin here. And uh, I'm going to read these two questions, then I'm going to read the first 24 verses and then focus on the first eight, okay? And I've got 20 minutes to do that, which I don't think I'm going to make. Number one, how must God's word be used so that a man, that is mankind, that he may live a pure and sinless life? How must God's word be used? In other words, a, a used thing, something that is alive, that is, that is something that we, we can uh, put into practice, a tangible thing. And then two, what compelling reasons urge the writer to study God's law? Like what motivates him to just go after God's word constantly? And remember, God's law was the law that they had. It was literally the law. He loved his law. Let's read Psalm 119, verses 1 through 24, if you'd go there with me. I'm going to read it in uh, the ESV, and I'm going to do some of my notes from the uh, New King James. So I'm going to kind of cross over on some of these, which, by the way, both are very close in their, uh, in their translation. And I'm going to read from the ESV. Verse 1 says this, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame. 
Having my eyes fixed on all your commandments, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Next stanza starts in verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up with your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. The third stanza, and I'll finish with this. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I'm a sojourner on this earth, or on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones, those who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd be with my words, that they would be honest and true to the text. I pray that you would give um, me and others encouragement as to how to make your word more Im Im important and real and usable in our lives. And it's not just something we just pull off the shelf and read and get done with our, our year in a Bible plan or, or just our daily time with you, but Lord, that we would use your word for life and that it may be that important. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Let's go back to verse one. Verse one, we have this idea um, in the first, actually, ver two verses where he, he, he says blessed. Pastor talked about blessed are, blessed are in the Beatitudes, and this particular blessed, uh, in, in these two uh, words here that are used, uh, could be translated happy, but there's a, there's a, I think, a, a, a more, there's more depth to it than just happy are um, these people who, you know, the undef blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. In, in, uh, in the New King James, instead of using blameless, blessed are the blameless, it uses blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies. And let me, let me argue or give you a reason why I don't think this necessarily indicates just simply happiness. And I want to go to Psalm 1. Go to Psalm 1 and flip over to Psalm number 1. And I, I, want, to, I want to demonstrate this to you. Where we have the first two verses in Psalm 1, which we have memorized, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and he meditates on it day and night. Now, I don't know about you, but there are times where I, like Romans 7 says, I, I want to do, you know, godly things, or, but, but my passion and my flesh just chooses the wrong side. And there are times where I literally can identify with the psalmist, whether it's David or others, who say, 
You know, why are the ungodly seeming to do so well and have so much? Whether it's riches, whether it's fame, whether it's success in career, just seems like everything's going great for them. And here we sit as a Christian and it's just a struggle day by day. In chapter 1, there isn't this like, you know, blessed or happy because you do this every time. More it is this blessed or this idea of there's value in what you do. Notice again in chapter 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. There isn't an instant like prize that God gives us for not walking or, or being part of this group. It's this sanctification, this progress that, that, or process that God has for us, and we eventually will be completely glorified in him. But let me tell you, I'll be honest with you, right? Hey, if, if sometimes it hurts or it feels like, oh, I just wish I could do that one thing that the world just grabs onto and has no problem with, and for us it's, it's, it's kind of like, yeah, I'm not going to do that because I know that it'll disappoint God. But it's not like we're celebrating the fact that we forgot temptation or we walked away from temptation. It's not this instant happy. And I think here in this psalm, we have to understand that it's not just happy. Because let me, let me ask you, if you do something right, are you automatically just happy? Does it just come off like, wow, I'm on the top of the world. I did what my boss wanted me to do the right way. Or I, you know, whatever it is. It doesn't just explode into happiness. And so this is why I think these two specific words deal more with this. And I'll, I'll uh, open this up a little more. I think these two words mean something of value. Do we always feel happy when we don't follow the world? Not always. Because some, sometimes I want to do what the world wants me to, what, what they're asking me to do. And quite frankly, it looks fun and exciting and I'd like to do that. So I'm not happy Yay, that I didn't do that. I think there's a success there. I think there's a victory there. But again, where are your passions, really? We always usually play like this. If God's here, if we are totally great Christians, we walk towards God with our hands wide open, right? But here's what I find myself doing. God's back there, and he's just like, I just look at the world, and I'm just like, okay, I just kind of want to go over, okay, I'll come back a little bit, God's pulling me out, hi God, okay, that looks really good, it just, it's this constant struggle in my life, can anybody identify, our back is to Christ, because why? None of us, not one of us can do Psalm 119, the first eight verses, read it again with me. Blessed are the undefiled or blameless in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who keep him with the whole heart. Let's stop just in verse 2. I give up, right? So do you. You can't do that. So what we do is we put our back to God. We're like, yeah, we're Christians. We're walking closer to God, but we're walking backwards because it's so much fun to watch what the world's doing. It's pretty cool. And every once in a while, yeah, we'll walk this way for a while. Nope, can't do it. Pastor's watching. Careful, right? Oh, I mean, come on. Let's be honest. If we were as close and word-driven, gospel-focused, intentional, 
This would be our heart and our focus and our turn would be to Christ. See, it's not just about being happy. Because you can be sad and do something right. I can, anyway. I experience that emotion. There's a couple of cross-references that we can look at, and I'd like to look at verse 14. Go down to verse 14 in Psalm 119. It says, I rejoice in the way of your testimonies as much as all in all riches. There are several times, in fact, in verse 14, 72, 127, 62, the psalmist identifies being blessed with worth. And we identify it with wealth. We say, he says more than riches. So he's tying it to gold and silver, something that is literally worth something to everybody. Now we can't go a day without our paycheck. We can't go a day without a dollar bill in our pockets. And if we do, we've got a piece of plastic that has about a bunch of numbers down there, and we can swipe it, and it gets us through. And he's saying, the word, what, what verse 1 and 2, blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his commandments, who seek him with the whole heart. That is more valuable to do that than even to have money in your bank account, to have cash on hand. It's worth more than the gold medal. It's worth more than any riches or anything that you can possibly muster up. It is worth more. Will it create an end of happiness and an end resolve that is according to Christ? Yes. But I find myself backwards to Christ most often, saying, I wish I could do that, but because I'm a Christian, yeah, I'll walk with you, God, but it's going to be backwards. What focus is that? Where is taking God's word and letting it just invade me? So, you know what? I don't even have to look at what the world has because this consumes me. Consumes me. Proverbs, uh, actually in verse 103, the psalmist in this particular chapter, 119, says it's, 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 it tastes better than sweet honey. It's more precious, this happiness. This is, is, is more more tasteful than the sweetest of honey. Proverbs 13, 13, 16, 20, 19, 16. Scripture talks about the idea that it's, it's worth more than, than a day's wage or pay, a payment of some type. So it's, it's not just in Psalm that we see this idea. It's all over, especially when we're talking Solomon. I mean, he's the wisest guy, right? So if, if we have this idea that if we're going to gain understanding and wisdom and put all this together, if we're walking in God's ways, and that is worth more than gold, then what are we doing not doing that? Well, I live in this world, and I have a sinful nature, and I know why I don't. Because it's hard. It's very hard. Notice where you walk and what you do when you're blessed, okay? When you're, when you're filling this worth, worthiness or this value. It's in the law of the Lord. Remember I said law and testimonies, and there were eight, six others of, of these words that I said you will see repeated over and over again. What's the psalmist talking about? He is meditating, he is thinking, he's walking, and this walk means a habitual pattern. That's the actual meaning of the word walk. It's a habitual pattern in the law of the Lord. I walk in it. It's, it's, like, my, it's like my hand. I see it every day. It's here. It's, I know it. I know what my hands look like. I know what's on them. I know the ring that I have. I know the weird hair stubble that's on the back. I just know my hand. 
And if it weren't my hand, I wouldn't know it. And he says, I know the law of the Lord like the back of my hand. I know it. Because he does what? He walks in it. It's a habitual walk. It's an everyday thing. But it's something that he is focused on. Verse 2, he says, blessed are those who keep his testimonies. Where do you find his testimonies? In the word. In the word. Then he says, who seek him with a whole heart. Let's talk about whole heart for a moment. Whole heart. There are three things that identify this idea of whole heart. This is where it gets a little bit tricky, and perhaps we kind of finagle out of what this does in our own spiritual lives, because, well, I know it does, because I don't measure up in any of these three either. If, I, if we deal with the whole heart, several commentators that I read talked about three, sometimes four things, but I kind, of, I kind of like these three, so I selected them. But the whole heart meaning intellect, volition, and emotion. That is the whole heart. So if you go back here and you look at verse 2, blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart, how do we seek him? intellectually, volitionally, and emotionally. Well, what does that mean? Well, let me give you some definitions and help you and see how you do. Do you seek God? Do you seek his word? These three ways. Intellectually. The faculty of reasoning and understanding objectively at the deepest levels. Huh. Every day at the deepest level, do I, do I entertain this word and let it just infuse in me? How about you? I tell you what, I look at junior hires and high school students and young people all the time, and I ask them that, and generally what I get is no eye contact. <laughs> um, well, sometimes, right? No eye contact. Why? Do you want to be asked that question every day? Do you study God's work at the deepest intellect that you have been given and the capacity that you have? Okay, strike one, right? I'm already out. Two, how about volitionally? Mr. Webster defines it this way. A faculty of power of using one's will. Well, that's even worse. (laughs) I don't do that volitionally because if it's my will, I'm choosing what? Wrong, right? Most of the time, wrong, right? That's too many right and wrongs in one sentence. Sorry about that, confusion. Maybe that's what our world is, confused, right? Wrong? (laughs) Okay, maybe you guys are (laughs) totally asleep like I usually put people in that mode. Volition, faculty of power of using one's will. Do you volitionally use God's word in your heart and life every day? Do you use your will along with God infused into that? I understand. I'm not saying be apart from God's spirit. I'm saying you use everything that's inside you and the regenerating power that you have been given through the spirit and you use your volition to study and know God's word at a depth. Intellectually, volitionally, how about emotionally? An effective state of consciousness to enjoy, to love, to yearn, to feel. That's emotionally. So when somebody tells you something of Scripture and, you're, and, and it impacts you and you go, oh, yeah, or mm, something changes in you. Something just lets loose emotionally inside of you. And you could be the most non-emotional person, but inside, it is just ramming around in there. Oh, let me think. Let me let you think for a moment. Is God's word, those who seek him with a whole heart, do you do it intellectually, the deepest levels of your faculties given you? 
volitionally, every part of you that you can possibly muster up in your own will, or emotionally? Do you seek His Word on those three levels? Well, that's what whole heart means. And obviously, we could leave it at whole heart and say, with everything, man, as nice as this psalm starts, I'm depressed by verse 2. I think you are too. Because there's no way to match that or meet that outside of God's help. Let's continue on here. And let's look at the idea of this whole heart. And I'm not going to, for the sake of time, I'm just going to let you know the verses that this idea comes. And the psalmist uses six times in this chapter chapter 119, verse 2 that we saw, verse 10, verse 34, 58, 69, and 145. It's a recurring theme. And it's more spread out than the ideas of laws, testimonies, statutes, precepts, and the like. So he, he piles in all this stuff about God's word. He just jams it in here because this is what he's all about. And then he says every once in a while, these six times, now go after this and seek it with your whole heart. Intellectually, volitionally, and emotionally. How are you doing? Verse 3, they also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. 1 John 3, I don't have time to, to turn there, but it's John is talking about and giving these, these ideas of the children of God and loving God. And, and how if, if you love God, you just do not sin. You just don't sin. You're just, you're, sin is not part of you. And part of that is the invitation of Christ on you. And so he sees your righteousness. I understand that. But he is imploring these people just to love God and don't sin. Don't sin. Don't be a part of evil. And it's that whole chapter that evades that idea. And it's this they. They also do no iniquity. It's the people who love God. They just love Him. They, they look at God as, as an actual real life thing. Like He's there. Well, how many seasons of life have you gone through where God has just been there but not there? You know what I mean? He's, he's a being, but he's not your inner being. He is there in the world, in the cosmos somewhere, but obviously he doesn't have anything for me right now. Verse 3 says, they, those who love him unconditionally and do what he says. In fact, even in that First John passage, it talks about the statutes and the truth that they love, that they enjoy. They also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. So as we get to the end of verse 3, we've got this huge um, mountain of, this is great, this is fantastic, but what again, what does that leave me? Look at verse 4. Verse 4, he gets into another set where we see the, you know, the idea of precept. He says, you have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. Oh man, we could go into a lot of stuff with this idea of diligence. In this chapter alone, 25 times he talks specifically about diligence. When somebody comes up to, say, to you and says, do your due diligence, what, do you, what, what does that mean? Do your duty, right? Do what you need to do to be prepared and make this done. Have a successful event, have a great life, have a great marriage. Do your due diligence to give. Your due diligence to serve in the home. Due diligence at work. Due di okay. Do you do due diligence in the word? Is this worthy of your diligence? 
Or is it kind of like, well, it's there. This psalmist in this particular chapter cannot separate the due diligence of knowing God and the due diligence of having his word in his life. There is no, you can't have it. You can't know God without his word. You just can't. Is there diligence there? I won't even list all the times that it's put in here, but 25 different verses in this chapter alone. Verses 5 and 6. I'm running out of time, I know. You, you see this idea of, oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. It seems like there's this transition of conversation. In the first three, blessed are the undefiled who walk in the way, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. They, who, they also do no iniquity and walk in his ways. You've commanded them to keep his precepts diligently, excuse me, through verse four. And then we see, oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. It's almost like he goes from a testimony of what needs to happen to a prayer of what has happened in his life. And we have two O statements, one in verse five, and then one at the verse, verse eight, the very end where he says, oh, do not forsake me utterly. Well, this idea here is, is important. Oh, that your, my ways were directed to keep your statutes, then I would not be ashamed when I look into your commandments. Um, I'm not gonna say much about this except for the fact that there's this, this change in, in conversation, but he reverts quick, quickly back to verse seven to these statements, I will praise. And he says, I will praise you with the uprightness of my heart. When I learn of your righteous judgments, I will keep your statutes. And then he says again this idea of, oh, do not forsake me utterly. And the idea of praise and righteousness, there, there are, um, in verse 13, 14, 52, 62, 108, 151, 152, 160, 164, 171, and following, idea of praise, what that means, what that looks like. He says, I will praise you with something. Okay, so obviously, following God in a right way equals a happiness or a praise that just comes out of his life. So if you're not following God, is there godly praise that's going to come, come out of you? No. It's not going to. If it is, it's manufactured. It's a manufactured praise by you to get by whatever spiritual person or thing that you're trying to deal with so you can skate by to get through to the next one. You do that through the week. You just come here and throw some praise around, a couple of terms and just, you know, God's great, love it, he's awesome. And then for the next week, slump into nothing and then back up to this, I'm going to praise you. Is it manufactured? To answer the questions, and I'm going to stop here. I, I have many more notes that I could go through, and I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to uh, belabor this. But as you think about the first verses here, and you ask the question, uh, the, the, the two questions I started with, how must God's word be used so that a man may live a pure and sinless life? How does that happen? And I think it's clear, clear from the first two verses that you must walk in the law of the Lord, which indicates there's got to be a love and a passion for pursuit of the law of the Lord. If you don't want to read your Bible, you don't want to pursue those things, guess what? If you don't have passion for something, you don't want it. 
You don't like it. I'm trying to learn the Spanish language, right? So if I, if I pursue it, I have a goal, if I really want to learn it, and it's going to be in my mind, and I'm going to, I'm going to use it, I'm going to go after it. If I am just simply going to, like a commercial I saw, two guys get in a car, and it's a fuel commercial, right? They get in the car, they put in, learn Spanish from CD or something like that. By the time they get to the next gas station, obviously they've gone so far, they're speaking fluent Spanish to each other. That's not how it happens in life. I hate to tell you that, but if that were the case, I'd put in spiritual DVD on my mile drive from my house to Trinity, and then I would take it out and live my life. We wouldn't even need church, right? We could just go through the drive through push the play button, we got our hour in, boom, we're done. Is that how we answer this question of how must God's word be used so that a man may live a pure and blameless life? How do you do that? You love God's word. You're part of it. It's part of you. You do not relent from it. So I answer that question by saying, walk in the law of the Lord, verse 1. And then verse 2, we see, seek him with a whole heart, intellectually, volitionally, and emotionally, every level of your inner being. Second question, what compels or what compelling reasons urge the writer to study God's law? In other words, why study God's word? Have you ever asked yourself that question before? You're laying in bed sometime wondering if this whole thing is even real. I remember two times, one in high school and one in college, or vividly the one in college, where I remember thinking to myself, <laughs> what am I doing in Minnesota? It was warm back home. What am I doing in Minnesota? where they would force you to wear suits and ties to church and you had to go a certain amount of times and you had to be in certain activities and you had to do all this stuff and check it off a list. What am I doing? And I, I remember coming to the question, is there really a guy, what is this? Pillsbury College, I never heard of Pillsbury College. Never heard of that place, which consequently doesn't exist anymore, but <laughs> what am I doing? What compelling reason urged the writer to study God's law? What compels you to study God? Do you have enough faith to walk in and say, Psalm 119, yeah, I need to study his word. Why? Because if you're asking me, I'm the two O statements. I'll close with this. Look at verse 5 again. O, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. In other words, I can't on my own. I need you to direct my statutes I need, and my, my paths. I need you to teach me those things. And then verse 8 is where I most identify with. Because I cannot do all those things on my own, oh, do not forsake me utterly. What chance do you have to make it to heaven on your own? Zero. It's by God's mercy and his grace, and that's it. That is it. And if you're like me and the psalmist, you can identify with that statement. Don't forsake me, God. I know I'm nothing. I know I'm a zero. I'm a sinner. I walk with my back to you. I look at the world and want it. That is so wrong. 
And yet he sent his son, and he says, you're white as snow. Maybe God sent me to Minnesota and ultimately to Wisconsin to understand that concept. Snow means cold. And when it's falling, nobody wants to be out. And that first snowfall is as pure as anything I've ever seen. And it's beautiful. It's not interrupted. Rabbits haven't had a chance to destroy it. Wind, yeah, but it's beautiful. That's the white that we get to be viewed by, by a holy God. It's white. It's spotless. And it's because there's a God who loves you and loves me enough to die so that we can have that. So what motivates me to study God's word? What motivated the psalmist? It was because we have a holy God who is waiting for us at some point to meet him. We better do our due diligence in this word.